Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this morning, God, we celebrate. God, we celebrate with joy-filled hearts. Hearts that have been forever set free. God, the truth is that there was a moment in time in our individual lives when we were not free, but we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to death. We were headed toward that day that we feared the day when our life would end. But God, today we celebrate because for those who are in Christ have been set free from all of that. There is no more fear in death. We are not afraid to die. For those who are in Christ, if we are in Christ, then we will also, even though we die, we will also live. Just as you live, we will also live. And God, we thank you for that. God, this morning we come and Lord, I want more than anything for us to not simply say, there's another Easter come and gone. God, I want us not to be more concerned with lunch than we are with the resurrection. God, I am inadequate, totally and thoroughly inadequate to communicate your word, the truth of the resurrection. Everything seems to fall short. God, you can speak through me in such a way that that these words of mine become the very words of you. And God, that they would penetrate the ears and the minds, the hearts, the lives of the individuals here. And God, that you would change our lives. God, there are those of us here who you have changed our lives. God, we, we want to be more and more and more conformed to Christ. And God, there are those here today who have never been changed. They have never moved beyond death to life. They are still slaves to sin. And God, today I pray that you would use your word, your servant, to bring them into life and into your kingdom. God, I pray this humbly. I pray this desperately in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you would, open them this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I I will tell you this morning that um, I come to Easter every year and I struggle a little bit. Now you say, well, that shouldn't be the case. You are a preacher of God's Word. It should not cause you to struggle when you come to preparing a message for Easter. That's not what I'm saying. My struggle is in the fact that there are those of you who, um, who are here every Easter, and we come to this story, and though it never gets old, 
The struggle is for a preacher to get up and communicate the truth of the resurrection in a new and a fresh way. And so I really wrestled with this. Because the last thing I want you to hear is simply that, well, I shouldn't say that. I want you to hear that Jesus died, was buried, and raised again. But I want you to know what that means. Does that make sense? I don't want you to simply hear the truth of Easter and then go eat lunch and hide Easter eggs. I want you to see the rest of the resurrection. In the Easter of 2005, in a church in, um, in Pittsburgh, it made national news. Maybe you remember this, but at Easter 2005, this church, well-meaning, wanted to do something to communicate the seriousness of Easter to their community. And so they put on a play. This was different than any Easter passion play I've ever seen. It included the Easter Bunny. And the Easter Bunny was brought in. And uh, the Easter Bunny did his thing in, in, the, uh, in, in the, uh, the musical that day. And it came a point, though, where the church, the Roman soldiers came in and began to beat the Easter Bunny. And they nailed the Easter Bunny to the cross. Well, you can imagine, as I would be, I would have been floored. I would have been appalled. And there were parents there that day that were absolutely appalled. Members of the community were appalled at this. If the Easter Bunny was nailed to the cross, what is this? Well, the youth minister from the church was interviewed afterwards because the youth minister was the one that, that played the Easter Bunny that day. And they were interviewed afterwards and they said, we, we wanted to show that Easter is so much more than bunnies and candy and eggs. And while their motives were good, I don't think their methods were very good. Do you? How ludicrous, how silly, how trite that is. I wondered though, as I read that this week, how trite and silly it is also that we come to this, this time of year. And for so many, they buy the clothes. I see a lot of pastels out there today. They buy the pastels and they hide the Easter eggs and they cook Sunday lunch. But it never really goes beyond that. And I wonder while we can point the finger and say that that church in Pittsburgh was trite and made a mockery, they trampled the blood of Christ. In the same way, how many of us, by not appropriating what is ours as a result of the resurrection, are also doing the same thing? So I want you to see this in this passage this morning. I want us to move beyond what is trite and move to the rest of the resurrection. Let's begin reading in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what is the greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This morning we come to this text, and this is not the traditional Easter text. Many of you had your Bibles on speed dial this morning. You were getting ready to either turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And you knew the chapter and the section where we were going to go, and you just had them ready. Maybe you had four fingers in there, and you were like, oh, that one, got it, flip. This is not the traditional Easter text this morning. But this morning I want you to know that I don't want this to simply be one more Easter that comes and goes. I want you to see the rest of the resurrection. And here in this text, I think Paul wants them to see the same thing as he he writes this letter to the Ephesian Christians. He starts out and he says, I'm extremely thankful for you. I'm extremely thankful for your faith because I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. He had heard about this. He had been there as a part of it and he had went away and he had heard how their faith was continuing and their faith was not simply in faith. Their faith was not in some symbol. Their faith was not in just positive thinking. Their faith was in, notice in the text, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they had come to hear the gospel and come to believe. That they had heard from Paul the message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had left heaven, had lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. They, all the rest of humanity, had not. And we had rebelled against God and fallen from our position with Him. And we were rebels and deserving of hell and death. And Jesus came and lived this perfect, sinless life. And what did He get for it? He was arrested and beaten. And He was taken and He was nailed to the cross. And there the blood drained from His body and He died there on that cross. There is no question about that. He died on that cross and He was taken from that cross and He was placed into the tomb And he was in that tomb from Friday through Saturday. But Sunday morning, when the women went to the tomb, the stone was rolled away. And they went and they told the disciples and John took off running and Peter took off running and they got to the tomb and John got there first but he stopped and he just sort of looked in. Peter ran on in just like Peter would do. And they found the grave clothes lying there. Not tossed around, but as if the body had just left them. Had just been absorbed through them. And they found the the face cloth that had been placed over his face, neatly folded and placed there on the bench. And then one by one, in, in groups, Jesus became, or, or He came to them. And He showed Himself to them. He comes 
to Mary in the garden and says, Why are you crying? What are you looking for? And she thinks he's the gardener and she turns and she says, If you've taken him, tell me where you've taken him and I'll go get him. And he says to her, Mary. She realizes who it is and she cries out, Rabbi. She goes and she tells the others and one by one and in multiple in groups, Jesus reveals himself to them in bodily form. He comes to Thomas and he says, Thomas, put your hand here. Thomas, put your hand here. And Thomas, I think before he ever had to put his hand there, in seeing the Lord Jesus risen from the dead, said, my Lord and my God. And later on, Paul himself, when he was Saul persecuting the Christians, violently against them, not simply a skeptic. He was a hater of the church. Killing Christians. When he's on his way to persecute more Christians, he is knocked off of his horse. Blinded. Not because the sun was high that day. He was blinded because Jesus Christ pulled back the veil of his glory and showed himself to Paul. And Paul gloriously was saved and became probably the greatest disciple in Christian history. Peter, who had denied Christ three times before the rooster crowed, just a little while later stands on the day of Pentecost and says, This Jesus who you crucified is risen from the dead. Every one of the apostles went to their death fighting for and believing the gospel of Christ. Men won't die for a lie. And Paul here says, I thank God for you because I hear about your faith in Christ. It is not simply faith in faith or faith in church or faith in your family that grew up in church. It is not faith in being good enough when the final day comes. It's not faith in having the right clothes or being from the right area or any of that. It is faith only and finally in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That all of humanity was deserving of the wrath of God. And Jesus, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, came, lived perfectly, took on our punishment, took the wrath of God, was raised from the dead so that you and I could be seen in Him. His righteousness transferred to our account. His being declared guilty so that we would be declared not guilty. And Paul says, I am so thankful for you that I hear of your faith in Christ. But also he says, I am thankful for your love toward all the saints. I hear about how you love one another. I hear about how you care for one another. And as John later writes in his epistles, this love that they were displaying that was almost involuntarily, it was really the mark of the Holy Spirit on their lives, just oozing out of them toward each other was a mark that they were authentically saved. 
These are authentic Christians I want you to hear. I want you to know that, that these are truly saved people. And He's thankful for them, that they are believing in Christ and loving one another. I would ask you at the outset, I won't spend much time here, but could Paul say the same thing about you? Could Paul look at your life, look you in the eyes and say, I am so thankful for you because I've heard of your faith in Christ and how you love all the saints. Could he say the same thing about you? If he knew you, you say, well, Paul doesn't know me. If Paul knew you, if he knew you like you know you, could he say the same thing? If he could, then thank God. Because you didn't do it. But if you couldn't say the same thing, then you need to ask yourself this morning, am I an authentic believer? Have I received the resurrection? And Paul starts out here and he says, I am so thankful for your faith. But he doesn't stop there. In verses 16 and following, He prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him. He goes on and He prays for them. He goes on and He says, I want God to enlighten the eyes of your hearts. Why? Why is it not enough for Paul simply to say, I am so thankful that you believed in Jesus Christ and how you love one another. You all are great. I am so thankful for you. Why does he go on and say, but I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of himself and that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. Because they, like so many of us in our day, have come in through the gospel and then we have become content to stay right there. I'm not saying that we should leave the gospel. We are in the gospel. We are saved because we prayed to receive Christ. We are saved because every day we trust the same gospel that we did when we came in. The gospel is not the diving board that we jump off of into the pool. The diving board is the pool. We stay there. But there are so many that are content just to, hey, come to church, amen the sermon, love the brothers, and that's it. And Paul says, I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom in the knowledge and revelation of Himself, that He would enlighten the eyes of your hearts. The heart today is considered the center of emotions. You know, when Valentine's Day comes around, you know, it's sickening. You see hearts everywhere. Maybe I'm just cynical, I don't know. You know, heart this, heart that, you know. I heart you. Uh, I heart New York and all this other stuff, you know. The heart is considered the center of emotions, but it wasn't that day, it wasn't that way in, in biblical times. In ancient times, the heart was not the center of emotions. The bowels were. That doesn't go so well on a greeting card, you know. I mean, how do you draw that, you know? A little arrow through it. It's just gross, you know. But that's what it was in that day because it was guttural and it was, they would feel it. The emotions they would feel in their gut. So then what was the heart? 
In biblical days, the heart was not the center of emotion, but the heart was the center of the intellect. The heart was the center of the mind. John MacArthur said it this way, that the heart could be taught things that the mind never could. That when a person got it with all of their heart, they really, really got it. And so when Paul here prays that God would enlighten the eyes of their hearts, he desires them to move beyond surface level Christianity based largely on feelings. We have way too many touchy-feely Christians today. We have way too many people when it comes to things like sharing the gospel with other people, they say, well, you know, I just didn't feel like I should at that point. I don't read that in Scripture. I don't read that in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, Go, make disciples of all nations. I don't read that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when it says, The Spirit will come on you and you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I don't read him there saying, you know what, but there's going to be days when, hey, you just don't feel like it. That's all right. You just go on your feelings. The perfect example of this, because she's sitting here, is there, there are days when my wife doesn't feel like loving me. That should not be funny. <laughs> You're supposed to gasp. Really? How could that be? There's nothing in you that would cause her to not want to love you. You know, you should say things like that, but not laugh. But there are days when she doesn't feel like loving me. When I get so wrapped up in what's going on in my life that I pay her no attention. That I neglect her. Why should she feel like loving me? But I thank God that she chooses to love me. He wants them here to move beyond surface level Christianity based largely on feelings. He wants them to know, to reckon, to understand all of what is theirs because of the resurrection. Second Kings, this is, this is what we need today. This story in Second Kings with Elisha. In Second Kings, you don't have to put it up on the screen, but in Second Kings chapter 6... Elisha is there and there's a servant of Elisha. He comes out and he comes out and he sees that the enemy has surrounded them. The enemy has, has encamped all around them and there are warriors all around them. And he comes to Elisha and he says, Elisha, we are doomed. We have no way out of this. They will kill us. I want you to listen, listen to what Elisha prays. The servant says, Master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, and I'm sure at that moment the, the servant kind of looked around and went, Really? Elisha? Uh-uh. And then Elisha goes on and he prays, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The invisible warriors of God were there. And it 
dwarfed this army that was threatening them. And in the same way, in the same vein, Paul here is praying for them that God would open their eyes. And I would pray the same thing for you and for myself this morning, that God would continue to enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would know, so that we would reckon, so that we would understand, and that would translate into our living. He knows they are merely scratching the surface of what is theirs in Christ. While he's very thankful for their faith and love, and don't hear me saying that those are small things. Don't hear me saying to love your brother or to love your sister is a small thing because sometimes that's the hardest thing. Don't hear me saying there is more to the gospel than faith alone in Christ alone. But I can't help but think that this is tied back to what he's just written in verses 3 through 14. Indulge me to read this to you. And hear Paul's heart when he says, I'm praying that God would enlighten the eyes of your heart. Listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That's the context. He says, all of this is ours and I thank God that you believe in Christ. I thank God that you are loving your brothers and sisters. But there is more that you need to walk in. I pray that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and the understanding of Him and that He would enlighten the eyes of your heart that you would reckon it so. And it leads Him to pray for three things. I want to run through these without running through these this morning. Which, by the way, some of you may think I'm talking fast. If you were here for Secret Church Friday night, I am talking very, very slow. And only those who are here would know. I told somebody afterwards, you will understand that I really am from East Tennessee when I speak on Sunday morning after hearing David Platt. He prays then for three things for them. Number one, things that, these are three things that come directly out of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there were no death and resurrection of Christ, we would not have these things. These are not things that he's saying, you need, to, you need to pick up these things. I hope God adds these things to you at some point. These are things he's saying, you already have in Christ. And I pray that God would open your eyes so that you would see them. These three things directly resulting from the resurrection of Christ. 
Number one, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. The hope to which He has called you. We live in hopeless times, surrounded by hopeless people, living in a hopeless world. You say, well, boy, that's bleak. I don't know if I really buy that. I don't know if I agree with that. Well, just go to the bookstore today or watch late-night television and see how many books are written and commercials or infomercials are playing that are selling hope. You can go to the bookstores or watch this late-night television and you'll find all of these selling hope on everything from diets to careers, to mates. Because people have lost hope in just about every area of life that you can imagine. We bounce from, you know, if you've never struggled with, with gaining weight, I don't like you very much. But anyway, no, I love you. But we, we lose hope with things. We try this diet and that diet. We bounce from this one to that one. We say, well, I tried the Atkins diet. And then I went to the South Beach diet. And then I went to the Fat Flush diet. And then I, then I tried the cookie diet. <laughs> the cookie diet? I heard about that one. I thought, well, I could do that one, you know. I saw the other day on a, on a dating service. I wasn't on there looking for anybody, but I saw the commercial on TV. <laughs> and they advertise. By the way, remember, you've got to choose to love me. They advertise that I think it's one in five relationships now today begin online. One in five. It says a lot about where people have lost hope. They've lost hope in meeting someone face to face. And people of all, I say all, political parties place their hope in a particular candidate only to be disappointed time after time after time. Because the government can't provide hope. When tragedy strikes, churches fill up because they are reminded of the hopelessness. And they want someone to tell them that everything is going to be okay. Do you remember 9-11? Churches were full the next Sunday because they wanted someone to tell them, How could God let this happen? Please tell me everything is going to be alright. There's one particular preacher who today every week preaches to tens of thousands of people. They flock. They fill his church. But yet he is preaching a neutered, gospel-less message. And all he is doing is saying to them, if you will just tell yourself it's going to be okay, if you'll get up every day and put a smile on your face, if you'll think positive thoughts, everything's going to work out and people show up in droves. And there is never any mention of the fact that Jesus Christ died for their sin. And He has been raised, conquering sin and death and hell and the grave forever. But people are so hungry to hear hope. Rob Bell, the, 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 the uh, founder, the producer of all the NUMA videos, has just written this new book called Love Wins. His premise in the book is that there is no hell. No hell. And this is a guy that... that Lifeway and, and Southern Baptist churches all over America have shown his videos to small groups for several years now. And he comes out with this new book and says, No hell. Why? Why is that so appealing? That book will sell like wildfire. Why? Because if there's no hell, 
That's hopeful. Right? I can live however I want to. And in the end, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be with God. That's the message people want to hear. But the reality is, that's not true. If I today want to go to Myrtle Beach, and I say to you, how can I go to Myrtle Beach? And you say, well, go out here and hit 85, and then, and then jump on 26, but you don't tell me to go 26 east, but you tell me to go 26 west, am I getting to Myrtle Beach? No. I, I think, am I right? Did I say that right? I'm not ending up at Myrtle Beach. I'm going to end up maybe close to my, my mom and dad's house. But I'm not going to the beach. And you can tell people what they want to hear all the time because they want hope, but the reality is there is truth revealed from God. This is not the hope that He wants them to see. This is not the hope to which they have been called. The hope to which they have been called was articulated by Him just a few passages later in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12-13, through 13, where He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is the hope that they have been called to. That they are no longer separated from God, but they have been brought near. He goes on in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He says, He, Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus on the cross took your penalty, took your punishment for your sin, took my penalty and my punishment. But when He was raised from the dead... When he was raised from the dead, God the Father looked on him, looked at his sacrifice, looked at how he bore the wrath of God and said, I am well pleased in my son and called him out of the grave. That's the hope that we have been called to. The hope that we have been called to, 2 Corinthians 4.14, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Christian, what we need today is not to listen to more of the gospel-like preaching. We don't need to think more positive thoughts. We don't need to just, hey, toughen up. What we need to realize is that where Jesus has gone, we will also go to. That's the hope that we have. Second, he prays that you would come to know and understand what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. I want you to notice how that's worded. He does not say, I want you to understand what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. He says to them, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. To Israel, God had said, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. And the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand 
and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's to Israel. Now to the church. To the church, God says in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. It ought to humble us. When here he uses this and he doesn't say, I want you to understand what your inheritance is, but instead he says, I want you to understand that you are the inheritance of God. It ought to humble us. It ought to cause us to look inwardly and say, why? Why? I mean, why would Paul want to draw their attention to the fact that they are God's glorious inheritance? Was it to puff them up? Absolutely not. No one can strut before God. You don't come into God's presence and say, God, aren't you glad that I'm on your team? I mean, God, you really, you really got the best end of this deal. That's ludicrous. It's frightening to even think or to say. So why? Why would he say this? Because when you realize that you have done absolutely nothing to earn God's love, but that He has set His affection on you completely out of the riches of His grace. You have no choice other than to overflow with thankfulness and love toward Him. No one can say, God, I kind of understand why You chose me. No, you come to God and you say, God, I don't understand it, but God, I thank You. God, I love You. I bring nothing to you. I bring nothing to the table. There is nothing in me. If my own wife doesn't feel like loving me some days, don't you think the same would be true of God? Yet He has chosen to. Listen to this quote. This was was a quote in the book that we received from David Platt, Secret Church, the other night. I thought it was so fitting. I, I put it in here. Malcolm Muggeridge. However far and fast I've run, still over my shoulder I'd catch a glimpse of you on the horizon and then run faster and farther than ever, thinking triumphantly, now I have escaped. But no, there you were coming after me. There was no escape. I have never wanted a God or feared a God or felt under any necessity to invent one. Unfortunately, I am driven to the conclusion that God wants me. He wants them to come to understand that they are the glorious inheritance of God. That there will come a day when Christ will present His spotless bride to the Father. And say, Father, look what I have done for you. The third thing is this. Hang with me. Hang with me. The third thing he prays for is this. He says, I want you to know. I want God to show you. I want Him to make it real and plain and clear to you what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. To what power is Paul referring? We finish the text here. I want to walk through them. 
It says, It's the power according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. That's the power that is toward us who believe. The same power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you, believer. Now lives in you. The same power. Think about that. We talked in Sunday school this morning. What was it? Who rolled the stone away? How did He rise? The same power that raised Christ from the dead now courses through you. You were also dead and now you are alive. And seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. This is the same power that has seated Christ at His right hand in the heavenly places. No longer having to perform sacrifices as the priests in the Old Testament did over and over and over and over again, never sitting down. But He performed one sacrifice and sat down at the right hand of the God. This is the power of God toward us who believe because of the resurrection. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There is nothing, nothing that can trump Him. There is no world power. There is no cosmic force. There is nothing that is over and above Him. This is the power toward you who believe as a result of the resurrection. And above every name. He's been seated and placed above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That power is the power that is toward us who believe in Christ as a result of the death and resurrection. Isn't that good? What this means practically in our lives is that this is no slight luck of the draw, having a good day in the locker room kind of power. This is dunamis in the original language. This is the word from where we get our word dynamite. Oftentimes when it's used in Scripture, it is used to show that it has the power to destroy as well as the power to build up. And this power that lives in you who believe is available to destroy those things that have victory over you. It conquers sin in your life. Listen to me. Listen. It also builds the character of Christ in you. Conforming you to the image of Jesus This means that the immeasurable power, note that word, the immeasurable power. You know, I mean, I I, I drive a V8, my wife drives a V6, whatever you drive, there's a limit to that power. But the immeasurable power that believers already possess has raised them to spiritual life, will raise them to glory, gives them power over formerly dominating sin and energy to obey, defeats Satan and all manner of demons empowers life-changing church-building witness. And sadly, for too many, it is only potential energy. I would end with this quote. This quote is from Jonathan Edwards. Our external delights... Our earthly pleasures, our ambition and our reputation, our human relationships for all of these things, our desires are eager. 
Our appetites strong, our love warm and affectionate. When it comes to these things, our hearts are tender and sensitive, deeply impressed, easily moved, much concerned and greatly engaged. We are depressed. Listen to me. We are depressed at our losses and we are excited and joyful about any worldly success or prosperity. But when it comes to spiritual matters, how dull we feel, how heavy and hard our hearts. We can sit and hear of the infinite length and height and breadth and love of God. This love of God in Christ Jesus, of His giving of His infinitely dear Son and yet sit there cold and unmoved. If we are going to be excited about anything, shouldn't it be our spiritual lives? Is there anything more inspiring, more exciting, more lovable and desirable in heaven or on earth than the gospel of Jesus Christ? We should be utterly humbled that we are not more emotionally affected than we are in the church. Church, it is a wonderful thing that so many of you have been genuinely saved. And for that... As your pastor, I am truly thankful that there are so many of you who are sitting here today confidently knowing that Jesus is your Savior, that you have faith in Him, in His finished work. And it's evidenced by the way you love one another. I am so thankful for that. But my prayer this Easter is that you would go on, that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened to the hope, inheritance, and power of truly following Jesus. Christ. Let's pray together. God, we are so we are so content in the wrong things. God, across this room right now, Lord, even the one who is speaking at this moment, God, We are so content so many times in the wrong things. God, we need You to give us a spirit of wisdom and the knowledge and understanding of You that You would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see the hope that comes from the resurrection. That You would lead us to see that we are Your glorious inheritance that will live with You forever. God, we so desperately need to see and appropriate and pick up the power that is available to us, that is working in us, toward us who believe. Lord, I pray that in this room, God, that you would open our eyes, that you would give us understanding. God, for those who are here that have never prayed to receive you as their Savior, they've never turned away from their sin, and they've never called on you to forgive them, be their Lord, that today, God, will be the day of salvation in their life. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.